this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the New Books Network, and I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Scott Donaldson, the author of a number of biographies, a poet in America, Winfield Tony Scott, By Force of Will, The Life and Art of Ernest Hemingway, uh, John Cheever, biography, Archibald MacLeish, An American Life, and for this book, um, Scott Donaldson to receive the Ambassador Book Award. And uh, the book we will be discussing today is The Impossible Craft Literary Biography, which was published by Pennsylvania State University Press in, nine, in uh, 2015. Um, hello, um, Scott Donaldson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, Natalia. Thanks for calling. So before uh, we start discussing your recent publication, would you tell us about your career as a biographer, as a teacher, as a professor, as a scholar? In The Impossible Craft, you share a bit about your life and career. And if you could tell us what attracted you to this career, to this field, uh, how did that interest uh, take shape? Uh, That would be wonderful. Okay, thanks. Um, I started out as a newspaper man got out of the Korean War and didn't have any particular profession. And luckily, uh, through a contact, I got a job as a cub reporter on the Minneapolis Star, which is one of the major Middle Western daily newspapers. And uh, I was there for a year and a half and learned amazing amounts of things from my colleagues, many of whom were uh, veterans from Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Daily News, Chicago Tribune, New York uh, Post, New York Daily News, New York Times, many of them toward the end of their careers, um, there were, in fact, a, a, an assemblage of mostly Irish drunks. And, uh, but they knew a hell of a lot, and they were brilliant. They were like, you know, people could take a story on the phone and make it five times better than the, than the, than the chap who was giving them the information. Uh, so it was a tremendous learning experience, and also... Working on a daily newspaper, you, know, you have to produce copy, you know, and so every day I'm turning out, turning out copy, and uh, and you're getting that habit. So after uh, doing that for a few years and uh, starting a paper of my own for a while, and uh, doing some other kinds of PR work, um, I finally decided to go back and get a PhD at Minnesota in American Studies, which was. Uh, a wonderful place to go and a very good teaching and, and, uh, and a great learning experience for me. And of course, I was of a certain age by then and I sort of had to zoom through my PhD and did it in less than three years, which is unheard of, of course. But anyway, so I got my doctorate and uh, started looking around for a place to, to, to teach. And William and Mary is one of the three places that I get job offers and I decided to go there. And uh, very glad I did. It was, uh, you know, it was a fine place to go. Then a sleepy Southern College, but about to uh, become uh, much less sleepy, much more active. Um, 
much less a southern institution than a national um, small university. Uh, so I got there and I got to teach uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald, which had been my primary primary two interests among American writers, I suppose. And um, um, and after a while, decided, and I still want to turn out copies. So I'm, I'm almost I'm publishing articles and you know in the places you're supposed to publish American literature. Um, and over time, Solani Review was a favorite place. So. But then I started, well, I, I, you know, I really want to write books. And uh, so what you do as a newspaper man, you're really writing about people all the time. And, uh, and as you, that segues into your fascination with the, with the lives and careers of people like Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and John Cheever and Archie McLeish and um, E.A. Robinson and others that I've written about. The, but... I decided that I wouldn't try to start writing a biography. Mm-hmm. Chap came to town and just done a biography of Ezra Pound recently. Uh, came down to Williamsburg, Virginia, and I went to hear him say, uh, "What you must do is a beginning biography is read everything that uh, that your subject has written and read everything about the subject, whatever everybody else has written. Then, after you could done that." may begin to think about trying to make a story out of it. So, of course, I followed that good advice. And, uh, um, and my first book was on a minor poet named Winfield Townley Scott, who I discovered in graduate school in Minnesota. Uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, he's a minor poet, but uh, that, that doesn't mean he's a poor poet. It just means he didn't have a huge reputation. Um, a very fine poet and uh, had a very complicated and difficult life um, and died of an overdose of, or of a toxic mix of alcohol and drugs. Um, probably, may, may or may not have been intentional, who knows. He had a, um, uh, in fact, it, it's, it's odd, but, but a number of the subjects I, I was dealing with were suicidal or well, Hemingway, of course, is a classic case. Um, Fitzgerald did try to kill himself a couple of times. Um, so, um, and uh, Winfield Townley Scott uh, probably was willing to exit this world when he took that overdose. Anyway, uh, so um, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm ghoulish, I don't think, but, but uh, it, it, it says a lot about the difficulty of being a writer at any time um, where there's never enough recognition of what you do as you see it um, or and it's, it's, you know it's, if you're someone you know writers like John Cheever for example <laughs> young young aspiring writers would write to him and say well what I think I want to be a writer what, what should I do about it? Well, the thing to do is to discourage them <laughs> because, uh, you know, one out of 50, you know, those aspirants may be capable of, of doing good work and uh, uh, doing publishable work. Although now, of course, every, every, everything can be published, but 
that was not true 50 years ago. And so uh, when I started writing books. So anyway, that's that's how I got started writing biography. And then, of course, I went on from this minor poet to uh, and the second book was on, on Hemingway, third on Fitzgerald, and then progressed with other writers that I was interested in. Well, thank you so much. And I uh, and I was really impressed with your own journey that you shared in this book. I found it extremely inspiring. And I just said to myself, wow, it's such a very rich life, meeting all the people and writing about all these people and entering, so to speak, their lives. I think that that's the notion that you kind of mentioned in, in, your, in, your, in your book, that when you write a biography, you kind of enter other people's life. You mentioned a couple of times um, um, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and you wrote a couple of biographies on, on each of them and on both of them. Um, Hemingway versus Fitzgerald, the rise and fall of a literary, um, a literary friendship. And you also mentioned that it was your pri uh, primary academic interest at the beginning. So could you tell us just a little bit um, about why Fitzgerald and Hemingway? What is it about these two writers that attracted you the most? To begin with, I, I had a, a sense of semi-identification with them. I'm, uh -huh. a Middle West, I'm a Middle Western guy. Uh, they both were. Fitzgerald grew up across the Mississippi River from where I grew up in Minneapolis and St. Paul. My mother, although we never talked about this, she died when I was quite young, may have danced with Fitzgerald. She went to St. Paul Central High School, which was the area where he lived in St. Paul. Um, so I no, I, I, I felt like, and of course, Hemingway came from the suburb of Chicago, um, but they're both little Western guys, and then one could relate to. So that was part of it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, of course I, I, I discovered Hemingway in, in, as a young man, a very young man, as a boy, and then uh, um, um, wrote my senior paper at, at Yale. Uh, and then an intensive English major on Hemingway's short story. So I got a fast start on that. Uh, and I didn't really come to know Fitzgerald's work all that well until later. Um, so Hemingway was my first, uh, my first connection and the one I was most dedicated to, uh, to pursuing. But, you know, um, Fitzgerald soon took a parallel place in my universe uh, with, with Ernest, and uh, and they both remained that way. So it's a curious thing because there's a kind of rivalry between Fitzgerald scholars and Hemingway scholars, but uh, luckily I seem to have safe passage into both camps, and I can mm -hmm. uh, talk about them when, I, when we go to memes, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, the Hemingway versus Fitzgerald book, uh, which is. Uh, the, the most successful one I've had um, uh -huh. financially. Not not that not that any biographer is likely to make very much money, but uh, <laughs> some, <laughs> you know. Anyway, so that's how I got started at Hemingway. Okay, well, so I mentioned just uh, just a few of those biographies that you wrote, and probably all of them have some dear memories uh, for you. And uh, which one is uh, is the dearest to you? Dearest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, 
I thought you were going to ask me something more interesting, like which was the most painful. <laughs> but we can get to that later. Uh, I, I guess the first one. I, I guess one mm-hmm. Scott is a, you know he's a minor figure, but uh, I really liked him. You know, and, and maybe because he hadn't been that successful, I could feel more of a sense of identification with him than with any of the other writers who were, after all, uh, famous. Mm-hmm. In a way, so. Um, but uh, another close sense identification was was, was was the last book before uh, Impossible Craft was called Death of a Rebel, the Charlie Fenton story, and Charlie Fenton was the teacher at Yale who had the misfortune of directing my senior thesis on Hemingway short stories, and. Uh, um, we became friends of the sort at that time, and I always admired Charlie. He was one of these charismatic teachers, and handsome, uh, young-looking. He'd been in the war. He'd been the RAF, flying um, bombing missions, and uh, you know, at, at Yale at that time, I was class of 1950, which gives you an idea how ancient I am. But it's uh, it was very exciting. Have a teacher standing up there in his um, Glen plaid jacket and a uh, uh, slim, handsome guy talking about uh, irreverently about the war and about his experiences and uh, and about how to write uh, write short stories. So um, and then uh, Charlie Fenton died and I. Um, the year before Hemingway did, so that would have been 1960. Um, and um, in, by jumping off the top floor of a hotel in, in Durham, North Carolina, um, so another suicide. Um, but I wanted to try to find out what it had led him to that to that position. And love had something to do with it, and had a broken marriage. And a, uh, possibly fractured, we have a new connection that might or might not have worked out. He was, just, he was sure it would, and then all of a sudden you're not so sure. And, 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 uh, um, and anyway, uh, um, I think I did a reasonably good job of understanding how it was that um, Fenton sank into that uh, whirlpool of depression that uh, overtakes the suicidal and uh, and you can't swim against it. Wow. But it was, it was a book I always wanted to do because he's not a major thinker. He, he wrote very good stuff. He wrote, uh, but he didn't live long enough to accomplish all that much. He wrote one of the very best first books on Hemingway. Though. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that was uh, Charlie. Um, it's not another... That was someone else I felt very close to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the other writers, I, I, I suppose, are, I met John Cheever, for example, but only briefly. And uh, um, But as you go, you know, as, as you tackle any, any one of these writers, it's for me a four or five year project. Right. It's an elephantine uh, um, pregnancy before <laughs> before the, the book issues. Um, but, uh, um, and, and obviously, you come to know a great deal about your subject and about uh, um, 
and never enough. But uh, um, you finally get the stage, you think, well, I, there may be more <laughs> I need to know, but I've got to, sooner or later, you've got to get words down on paper and, and uh, so you do that. But, but, you know, four or five years uh, um, per biography, which is pretty much my pattern, I think gives each subject a, a chance to, uh, to develop and to, uh, to, to emerge as a um, verifiable human being and as well, of course, as a brilliant writer. Otherwise, why would I be doing the book in the first place? You, know, so you begin with, with that kind of, I can't imagine writing a book about a writer whose work I didn't like or admire. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. a torture, I would think, you know, but... Uh, So. so it's quite inevitable to develop some dear memories about each of them while you're working on each biography for five, six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, sure, you, uh, you do. I, I always, there's nobody, and this doesn't always work out. I mean, mm-hmm. I, there are famous cases like Mark Shore becoming totally disillusioned with Sinclair Lewis, for example, when he did this massive volume of Sinclair Uh, and he, the more he got to, more he knew about Lewis, the less he liked him, and, and, and so that that can happen. You know, you can get a, a writer whose behavior outside of his accomplishment is, uh, well, execrable. It's, 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 it's without, you know, it's hard to admire somebody who, and you know, so who behaves badly, and uh, yeah, still, uh, I, I never. Achieved any kind of animosity toward any of my subjects. Always, always a sense of sympathy and admiration, and, and trying, trying above all to reach a kind of understanding of what was going on in their life, what was going on in their work, and the connections such as they were between those two things. So, so uh, your first biography was "Poet in America," Winfield Tony Scott. Is that yeah? yeah and it was published nineteen seventy seven. Okay, I guess it was. You know. Yeah. So, and uh, the impossible craft uh, is based on all those experiences that you had ever since, and it offers some sort of a very cohesive and coherent vision of biography and a biographer as well. So, what's your interpretation of this very interesting genre, biography, and bio? And what's your vision of a biographer as well? I know that you uh, mentioned that. Uh, mythical concept of a ideal biographer in, in, in this book. And um, if you could uh, say a, a couple of words about biography as a genre and biographer as a profession or as a, uh, as a field in writing. So that would be wonderful. Okay. Well, it's a fascinating thing to do. To write a biography and so You, you, you begin, as I suggest, with admiration for your subject, and you learn more and more as you go along, and you're, you're reading and reading and writing and, and, and talking to people, and uh, almost always I was dealing with someone whose relatives, at least, were alive, whose children or grandchildren, um, and, and sometimes, as with Cheever, um, many people <laughs> were available to, to interview, but... Um, so, um, and then you collect all of these notes and, you know, and, and uh, what, what's, what's interesting is how, how patterns emerge. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to say about somebody like, like anyway? Well, 
you can say about Hemingway, as I think I ended up doing, was that he wanted to be master of everything he pursued. So he didn't not only want to be a great writer, but he wanted to be the world's champion drinker. He wanted to uh, know everything about bullfights uh, more than anybody else, uh, about boxing and uh, about deep sea fishing and hunting. And, and he was a tremendous autodidact. He never went to college, but he, he taught himself everything. So, you know, I don't know where I started on this, this track, but uh, um, anyway, that's um, that's one of the fascinating things about Hemingway. There's sometimes deplorable things in, in these writers' lives. That's, that's one of the problems of doing biography, if I can segue into that subject, is that um, the accomplishment. The writing, mm -hmm. books, books of poetry, the novels, short stories, whatever, um, are uh, are there, and they're very good, <laughs> and uh, you admire them, and you admire the person who wrote them. Um, good, that's that's a great start. But the actual lives of most writers tend to be messy, tend to be complicated, tend to be uh, you know that's what. Carlos Baker decided after spending, you know, 15 years writing his first and still very useful biography of Hemingway, uh, that uh, span was just more complicated. You know, we think of him as a simple figure, Papa with the, with the beard and, the, you know, the weapons and the, um, um, as a kind of macho figure, mm -hmm. which, of course, is semi-ridiculous if you read his work, but... Never mind. Um, and it, that, that's gotten corrected over time, but uh, um, but that that was a that was a pose for him. That, that pose of he, he liked that. Okay, everybody thought it was a smart Papa. I mean, Pachinos has picture in Life magazine. Uh, he dies. Front page of Pravda, front page of New York Times, front page all over the world. It was, it was a big story. He was an international famous writer. Parallel say to Mark Twain. The late, late 19th century, one of these people who spoke across nations and, and continents. Okay, but you know that. Um, but he had four wives. He uh, was that wonderful with his children. He, uh, he didn't give them all, all the attention one might have thought he could. So, but it would have been very difficult. I mm -hmm. to live such an exemplary life. As as to parallel the the, the, the wonderful trove of material he left behind, you know. So, um, and and he would not have been able to write that wonderful material had he been just a sweetheart. You know, it just doesn't work that way. You know, writers are, have to be some kind of psychic kink, I think, mm -hmm. bothering them, attacking them always, uh, leading them to uh, despair. Leading them to, by God, get the words down on paper. At least I can do that, you know. So, 
So, like you mentioned, lives are very complicated, and it's probably even more complex to write about others' lives. And obviously, this work is very selective. And depending on what you select to include into the biographies you write will somehow shape that image of the writer and will shape our understanding even sometimes of the works they wrote. So how do you decide what to choose um, in terms of those facts that you will include into the into biography? And how do you decide what to leave behind probably and not to include? And obviously those items which will remain, so to speak, silenced, they will somehow also shape our understanding of the writers we read about. Um, so what's, what's your approach to that selective, <laughs> selective work? I, um, you, uh, you mentioned the words of, um, uh, M- uh, Mark Shore in your in, in your in your um, book, the um, impossible craft, uh, who said that uh, everything that is relevant to this theme should be included into the into biography. So, what's what's your uh, opinion on this selective work while composing a biography? Uh, yeah, what 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 do you use and what don't you use? You know, yes. you, you obviously acquire so much more information if you put it all down in two thousand pages of this. Nobody's going to read that, and so you cut it down to one tenth of that, or one eighth of that, or something. And uh, so you're using, uh, um, say, very pretty highly selective, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as you just step so much information that uh, um, it could become overpowering. And if you just put it everything down, it'd be one of the most boring reads. Well, so you get to um, get to arrive at some kind of pattern. Some kind of theme after all of the stuff you've read, 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 and thought about, and put into different files, files all over this office, and different categories. I'll make the same note on an eight and eleven piece of paper, and then make three copies of that note, and it goes to three different files because there are different pieces of writing in each that I want to come back to later. So you get these patterns, you get these topics, and you start jumbling those, and then you try to arrive at uh, um, some kind of pattern will emerge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this is... And then your, your pattern may not be right. <laughs> you can't be sure, but this is the way it looks to you, and, and what you've done as much reading about this, as much thinking about it as, as others, and, uh, you know, so, um, and you may be right, so... <laughs> You go ahead and pursue that, that kind of line. Um, so that, that, that's one, one of the things that you do. You have to choose the, the significant fact, incident, detail that will contribute to an understanding of the pattern of the life you're writing about. So that, that's what I think you're trying to do. Uh, parts sections of the book, as you know, I, I deal with how to how to assess letters and journals and how to, uh, and, and, and how much are you entitled to invade the privacy of your, of your subject? Very, very dodgy questions, you know, because you, you want to put down as much as you can, but at the same time, you, you don't want to cause any hurt to any survivors, for example. Um, and, uh, um, uh, there, there, there's a 
incident, for example, in the Fitzgerald case. Um, I got to know Scotty Fitzgerald, who was Scott and Zelda's only child, and uh, we were friends. I went out to dinner one time, and oh, I was first getting to know her, and it was in D.C., uh, and we went to a, a restaurant, and uh, and then we went to a bar called Gatsby's after dinner, which seemed appropriate. So I this Fitzgerald kind of stuff, and um, I, I swear, at, at this bar, it's what, about 19, mm. late 70s, 1975, 76, 77, um, that marijuana smoke was issuing from the vents. You know, I mean, the whole place just kind of made you high just to sit there, you know, without <laughs> smoking anything. Having a drink, though. Scotty liked to drink. So did her father. Anyway, we, uh, we were sitting there talking, and Scotty told me about, the, about her, about the, the family history of, uh, of depression. And uh, about the, uh, the suicide of her um, oldest son. Well, I had enough about that. And it's not my blood. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's enough evidence of, of depression in, in, in the in the Fitzgerald family and Sarah family's eldest Sarah was her name. To uh, to make the point without going into that particular piece of information, it's very difficult. Well, what do you do? You don't want to hurt people, you know. Same time, as long as you made the point, well, this is a family that was troubled. So the idea, and you knew, that's important to make because a lot of the biographers have intended to look at on Scott as as the villain. Mm-hmm. In, in relationship with Zelda, Zelda is stealing her material or um, that sort of thing. And I just don't think that's true. And certainly Scotty didn't. You know, and, uh, it, it was a complicated relationship, but this uh, Joe was, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, right now I'm working on, on this book, uh, uh, doing a, uh, uh, I'm going to be doing a long article or maybe a book. Uh, on on Tenders Tonight, which is Fitzgerald's 1934 novel about uh, about a, a disastrous marriage that uh, um, in which the, uh, the hero was a uh, psychiatrist, uh, psychoanalyst. No, no, psychiatrist. That's better. Um, is more or less undone by his very rich, very beautiful wife and. Um, and after he's helped help her back to health, um, he deteriorates as she improves, and in the end, he's just exiled off to somewhere in upstate New York, never to be heard from again. So you know that's that was the story for Joe Wright about this battle between the sexes. He saw that in the 1930s as the way his life was going, that he and Zelda were in a struggle for survival. And uh, they were not both going to be able to survive. So he's imagining himself as the victim there. So it did outlive him by some years, but that didn't have a heck of a lot to do with it. That, that wasn't a consequence of, of, of her 
winning the battle because she was relatively psychologically impaired from about 1929 on, and she lived another 20 years, but not wonderfully happy ones. So, um, it's, um, I don't know how I got into this, this business of, uh, of the battle between the sexes, except that I'm thinking about it all the time now, and the connection with Tenders the Night, <laughs> which I think is at least as good a book as The Great Gatsby, and, and ought to be read more of it. It's one of the things that, one of the reasons I'm devoting so much time to it. Okay, I don't know if this is anywhere near answer to the question you asked. Sure, sure. In one of your comments, you mentioned that um, biographies are somehow in conversation with other biographies, which are written by other biographers. So what's your experience of this kind of conversation? Have you ever had the uh, uh, case when your biography was in some very argumentative dialogue with some other biographies? Or have you observed cases like that? And what do you do out of these cases? Like you mentioned, your work is very selective and you decide what sections or what fragments about writers' uh, lives to include into biographies and which ones to leave behind. So what what's this gap probably between different biographies can inform about biography as a genre, for example? Yeah, well, that's a complicated question. Well, let me talk about Chachi. There's uh, my biography, which came out in the 80s, um, was succeeded uh, 20 years later by Blake Bailey, who's very successful in Chachi, which he managed to get access to a number of things I hadn't gotten access to. I got along with the family where I always had it's the only only time I ever had a problem with the family. Children especially, not not with Mary Cheever so much. But, uh, but that you know that, that um it's it's uh, difficult to know how seriously to take uh, the rivalry which automatically exists between you and any other biographer who's writing about the same subject. I mean, it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. So what do you do about it? Well, uh, I, I, I pretty much tried to avoid uh, self-aggrandizement in, in, in these, these matters and to try to uh, get credit where credit is due. I think uh, Blake Bailey's book is a very good book. I also think mine was a very good book, which not everybody does. Um, Anyway, uh, it's, uh, but, you know, you're, you're not really bloody conflict with other biographers. You really are. I mean, you're both professionals. Mm -hmm. you're, both okay. you're doing your work as best you can, and if you arrive at uh, somewhat different interpretation of the subject, well, of course you will. I mean, there's a famous story about, I think it's, it's from Virginia Woolf talking about being locked up in a room with, Banker's boxes full of notes, six banker's boxes, and given a year to write a book on basis of what sense of that. And, you know, anybody tackling that subject, using the same material, write entirely different biographies. Because every biography, in a sense, contains an autobiography. It's the way you look at the world. It's the way you feel about people. The way you, uh, that, that you can't keep out. Right, nor would you want to, because it's, it's what makes you a human being. And what I think it makes your, your writing better, too, if you're, you know, 
but uh, and, you know, it's a literary biography is more complicated than other kinds um, because you don't have the public record behind you, and then you have lots of writers who uh, take drastic steps to forestall further inquiry after their passing. You know, they, they assign the, the job of writing their biographies to their children or the wife or to, uh, um, um, or they burn papers. Uh, Dickens is famous for burning huge piles of his papers. And, uh, um, and then others did that too, you know, roasting marshmallows, open ovens, and they can. Um, it's, they don't want that life to be invaded. John Updike is one of my recent writers has felt very strongly about that. <laughs> he didn't. He felt that uh, anybody for coming along was, was likely to uh, um, find offensive things to say about him. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. What biographical work, biographical work has been done on him is to be fair and, and, and good. But there has been a tendency, I, I should admit, uh, going back 20 years or so, when uh, what Joyce Carroll Oates called pathography became a kind of genre. Uh, that is to say, where your subject uh, is presented in, in the worst possible light in every, every incident or encounter is, uh, is described uh, um, in the most unflattering terms. Um, so there are, are books like that. They tend to be books about celebrities, you know, the Kitty Kelly type book, but less about them than about, uh, about writers. Um, but that, that, that has been a, a tendency. I, I think it's, it's vanishing. I hope so. Um, and I don't like the idea of savaging your subject. Um, but, and then nor would I be capable of it, I don't think so. Anyway, it's, uh, it's um, well, I'm going to leave it that for a moment. So, uh, so to write a biography means to do a lot of self-analysis, self-contemplation, self-introspection, and sometimes it's quite painful to do. It can be, yeah. yeah. You see, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's something I don't think any writer, any writer can avoid. Let's show his social inferiority to the his people he grew up around in St. Paul. His father had not been a success. His mother was not particularly attractive or social. But he got sent to the best dancing school, the best schools, and that sort of thing. He's always feeling he didn't really quite belong because of the family relationship. Um, I felt a little bit that way growing up in Minneapolis and uh, living in a very nice part of town. My father was a success, but we didn't live at the lake, like Minnetonka, where the um, with the social elite tended to live. Um, and uh, we didn't travel the same social circles as the president of General Mills in Goldsbury and that sort of thing. 
Um, so uh, I went to the best prep school. Reasonably well, but I wasn't really among um, a kind of social hierarchy that was up here somewhere. And I felt that. And, and I knew. So I got a tremendous sense of identification with this job. Because uh, I could see it in him where, where others were not likely to see it. Now, uh, maybe I'm putting too much of myself into that. I hope not. Um, but uh, so that's, that's how, how these, these, uh, these questions can get, get uh, complicated. I, you know, you're in the book. Right. Automatic. It's your writing. It's what you're thinking. You know, you've got all this material you're dealing with. It. You're not, not distorting the material in any uh, intentional way. But the pattern you do see, like the pattern of this child's sense of social inferiority, which I think informs all of his work, is there. You know, is there because I do it. <laughs> I don't know. Like the people I grew up with, I think that was ridiculous of me to say these things. Because, you know, I was certainly a semi-privileged guy, you know, but uh, there's privilege and privilege. <laughs> What biography was the most challenging one? Oh, okay. What was the most challenging one to write? Um, well, I suppose because of the, the legal entanglements in my difficulty mm-hmm. achieving family with that. Uh, uh, it seemed to be sailing along until very close to publication at which time the uh, um, senior children decided to um, swap um, legal barriers. Um, never got to the stage of a lawsuit, although there were certainly letters back and forth from lawyers and that sort of thing. And, uh, and the, the book was heavily revised as a consequence uh, uh, so as not to use, uh, just to limit the amount of quotation or close paraphrase. Um, so, no, no, no. I've never been through anything like that. We were sitting around, I'm in New York, and, and we have this uh, high priced lawyer who's on the phone to Australia or wherever, and, and, and uh, Berlin, where we're talking, and my editor, Bob Loomis, an eminent editor at Random House. So, we're, we're there, we're, we're sitting around, we're trying to decide. Trying to cut every quotation down to 10 words or less. That's not many words. So, so I go along, I'm trying to compress what's said in this letter of 250 words into one reference of 10 words. It's not easy. So, and you know, you have to slap yourself on the wrist every time you get to 12 words or something because this is arbitrary. Random House was being sued at that time mm-hmm. for this very, very, very same, same matter in, in, uh, in, a, in a biography of, uh, of J.D. Salinger, which was eventually uh, semi-abandoned and then, the, then, the, then a book came out that was seriously handicapped by its lack of, uh, of, of quotation. So, 
I don't think that was that true of my Chambers book. I, and I, I've done a lot of, a lot of it had to do with, I've done a great deal of interviewing with people who knew him well. And of course, I didn't have to cut down my quotations of that. And, uh, um, you know, I, um, I've plenty to say about the writing, too. Uh, it's one of the things that, that I suppose is, um, semi-unusual, well, it's not true, almost all literary biographers I can think of in this country, the United States, tend to work at, at, uh, at institutions of higher learning, you know, that's their bread trip, uh, that's what they do, <laughs> but they get this bug in their ear and then they're going to spend uh, 30, you know, next four or five years working on, on a particular writer, um, the tendency is uh, to disparage literary biography because it's written by um, academics, most of it. Well, I'm, well, obviously, I no longer teach, although I used to teach a seminar out here where I live once in a while, but, but I, um, it's, um, I, I was never an academic writer. Uh, you know, I hate academic jargon and that sort of thing. And, and uh, I think having had the, the early experience as a newspaper writer, it's uh, tremendously valuable. I'm always writing for the general audience and never for some kind of specialist who wants me to use uh, language in which I convert perfectly good verbs into nouns or otherwise other, other way around. Um, I, I just like, for example, impact. It's a verb. Okay, I was affected by that. I wasn't impacted by it. I mean, it just doesn't sound right to me. And I know it's a noun, damn it, you know. And, and so this makes you a little old-fashioned. But and uh, but it's not, it's not like, but I don't think there's any any real trace of the academic stuff. The determination to do all the scholarship you can in my work. I hope not. So, so you mentioned that you're currently working on Tender is Light. What's what's your next biography, or what's your what's your next project? Well, as I say I'm working on Tender is Night. I most recently finished a, a long, well, seven thousand word piece, uh, which will be the introduction to volume four of the Hemingway Letters, which is coming out next year, Cambridge University Press, uh, going to be eventually something like 16 volumes of letters, but uh, I got asked to do that, and that, it's just a, it's a job of work, yeah, I'm not getting a great deal of money for it, but it's, uh, it's compensated, you know, and uh, I'm pleased about that, and uh, um, I was pleased to be asked to do it. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, things come along. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't um, um, Some of my family thought I might um, write some kind of autobiographical or a memoir type thing. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think that I'm likely to do that. Actually, quite a bit of my own life got funneled into the Charlie Fenton book and into this, as you mentioned, because of my career path. 
Orlando uh, um, Russell crowd. So there's enough there maybe for children and grandchildren to find out something about me should they ever be interested in doing so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I can ask one more question about biography of the genre. <laughs> Um, have you ever had such an experience when you all of a sudden realized that you changed in your initial vision of the writer you were writing about some some years later? I'm sure I have. Um, yeah, um, facts confound you. <laughs> you know, again, as I go back to Virginia Woolf and Swain's biography of the Painter Roger Fry, one of the rich ways of uh, Bloomsbury. Um, she knew very well, but uh, how can I ignore the facts when they keep contradicting my view of things? <laughs> yeah. And there they are, you know, and you, you can't ignore them, you know, can't get to dismiss them as unimportant. Um, So and, and, and it's um, that's that's another one of the problems of, of, of making biography interesting is that you you know you're telling a story, but you're not telling a story like a novel. Well, you can use certain techniques, but you cannot invent things. You know, put up a bad banner that says this was not made up. This is what I found out, uh, and, and it's true to, as, as far as. Anything can be true. It's certainly true to the facts. Okay, facts are not equate to the truth, but with enough of them reasonably interpreted, maybe you can arrive at something like truth. But, um, but I don't think you can make things up. And then and, and some biographers quite recently have been doing that. But uh, it seems to be a violation of the, uh, of the code. No, this is not... Not something that we should be asking the public to accept. Um, I think of uh, the biographer of, uh, of Reagan, uh, Edward Morgan, I think it is anyway, he, very accomplished biographer, but he invented this character called Edmund Morgan, who knew uh, Reagan during a period of his life. It's all made up. You know, it's, uh, it, was a device in radio biography about somebody who had very little to say. Reagan, as a subject, was almost hopeless, I guess. He just didn't... Well, I, yeah, I was an actor and then I became president and did these things, but, uh, um, but he, he, he was not a, a good source. <laughs> So he almost had to make something up to keep it interesting. Um, so, but that, 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 that's an extreme case, I think. You know, and speaking of politics, uh, I don't think we'll have any difficulty finding enough of interest to say about the candidates in this particular election. It's just extremely complicated and difficult people and less than admirable people. Um, especially on one side, but we won't go into that. What biography code do you follow? 
Yeah, well, this is not made up. This is uh, these these are the facts that I've seen them. Um, so yes, the biographers come. Um, well, okay, you begin writing a biography with at least a strong admiration for the work of your subject, and with a complimentary curiosity about what sort of person was able to accomplish such things. You do your dutiful, but often exhilarating research, you become a drudge. This is the ideal biography. He has to be a drudge. He has to be a psychologist. He has to be a, um, uh, a detective. Um, okay, so you do your dutiful and often exhilarating research, discovering illuminating remarks and unexpected actions along the way. And you read and reread and assemble boxes full of notes. Got boxes all over the software. Eventually, the notes begin to fall into a pattern. We hope they will. So you shape your book along the lines of that pattern. And you hope to end with understanding. That's all. Invariably, you end with a profound sense of loss when it's time to let Scott or Ernest or E.A. Robinson or Archie McLeish or John Cheever go back to their rest. Um, and for the rest of us, um, to return to the what really matters about that you know, words they let us put down on paper for us to look at. But if that feeling communicates yourself, we now have a kind of understanding of this person. It may not be totally valid. I hope it isn't totally invalid. But you hope you contributed that to the, to, to, to the story. This is not only a story, but it's a story with some kind of point. So if you can go that far, and if the reader feels the same way about it as you do when you're finished, uh, you'll come close to achieving what I otherwise call the impossible craft. It's, uh, you, you can't get in someone else's head. Freud knew that. You can try but you're not going to get in there. Um, but you can you can try, and you can um, you can maybe maybe uh, establish the basic themes of a life. We don't present them to, to the reader, and that's after all what readers are after. They want they're interested in these people if they're reading the book at all, uh, reading a biography at all, uh, and. Uh, so that they want to arrive at some kind of understanding of, of a writer that they admire, or you admire, or both of you admire. So that's that's what, uh, what I've been doing. Yeah, that's that's hard work. Well, it's it's hard work, but it's very rewarding. Yes. You know, I mean, I'm, there's never, as I was saying very early on, there's never enough information. But sooner or later, you have to say, "This is it. I'm going to put this down and send it out." Uh, because you can't keep accumulating material because there's always something new that will come up. And if you keep accumulating all that stuff, waiting for something new to come up, it will. <laughs> if you hold off writing, you'll never get the book written. So you, know, you have to get to a stage that, well, I think I know enough now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalia. Thanks. Thanks for calling.